Well, we still have six days to go, but today is the Sunday before Christmas, and that's typically when I like to give a Christmas-themed message from God's Word. And why do we do that? I guess you might say it's just tradition. But then again, why do we do all the things we do this time of year? And the answer is going to be the same. It's tradition. Just by way of introduction here, maybe I can challenge you with a question, but what part of our Christmas celebrations today are biblical? I mean, think of all the things you do around Christmas time. Can you trace any of them directly back to the Bible? This time of year, many families will go cut down a perfectly good fir tree and stick it in their living room. And as that tree is slowly dying, they will decorate it with lights and ornaments. But a Christmas tree is, is one of the defining symbols of the season. Does it have any link to Scripture? None at all. What if you put like an angel or a star on top, right? That was part of the, the birth story of Christ, and, and they were, but the Bible says nothing about sticking them on top of a tree. You also have lights. Many will similarly decorate their homes in strings of light, and it makes for a beautiful nighttime display. And granted, there wasn't electricity when the Bible was written, but nevertheless, the scriptures say nothing about any decoration related to Christmas inside your house, outside. It doesn't really matter. There were no... Stockings over the fireplace, no tinsel, mistletoe, reindeer, candy canes. The same goes for all things Santa-related. I hope that one's obvious to you. Santa's not actually in the Bible, especially the flying variety. But even the historical figure of St. Nicholas bears almost no resemblance to Santa Claus today. What about giving gifts? That's biblical, right? Those magi showed up. They presented gifts to Jesus, right? And they did. The Magi showed up way after the birth of Christ, and also while they did present gifts to Jesus in worship. And never did the scripture say or suggest we should give gifts to one another as some way of worshiping the Lord. It's kind of odd when you think about it as well. Like, you have a huge birthday party, everyone shows up to celebrate you, but then they just ignore you and give gifts to one another. That's what Christmas is like. It's supposed to be Christ's birthday, we're just giving one another stuff. And really, if there's anyone part of our Christmas traditions that cause us to forget the Lord, it's probably gift-giving. But go down the list. Christmas movies, Christmas carols, Christmas cards. You pick any tradition, and I can pretty much tell you one thing. It, it's not from the Bible. The Bible most definitely records the fact of Christ's birth. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell the events that are very familiar to us now. The young Virgin Mary was found to be child by the Holy Spirit. And this child was the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, but he was also the son of God. This was God incarnate, God come down to live among us, and as the angel announced, to save his people from their sins. And when the days were completed, having traveled to Bethlehem, Mary gave birth to her son. They named him Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. And to witness this first advent, the first coming of the Lord into the world, God uh, announced this good news to uh, a group of shepherds watching their sheep by night. Angels told them of the coming of the Christ. So they went, they found him, and they worshipped him. And that is the right response to the, the first advent of Christ, to worship. But that response is never limited to a day or a holiday. We're never once commanded in scripture to remember or commemorate the birth of Christ as a a holy day or holiday. It's never even suggested that we do so. Outside the gospels, the birth of Christ is never even mentioned again. And the early church knew nothing of Christmas for the first 300 years. 
Now, this does not mean it's wrong for us to celebrate or mark the birth of Christ. It's certainly not. It's not wrong to commemorate the entrance of the King of Kings into the world and all that it meant. And we do so. But it it should caution us from making too much of a single day, especially if it leads us to neglect the other 364 days of the year, which are perfectly good days for remembering and worshiping the coming of the Savior to the world. I mean, doesn't it strike you at least a little bit odd that that the number one day on, on our calendar is not even mentioned as a holiday in the scriptures? We don't even know the true date Christ was born. You probably know this, but December 25th is not from the Bible. The fact that shepherds were watching their flocks by night, the hills of Bethlehem when Christ was born, suggests that it probably was springtime, not the winter anyway. The first record of Christmas on December 25th wasn't until A.D. 336. hundred years before that, Clement of Alexandria was writing about people in his day were trying to discern the date Christ was born. December 25th wasn't even on their list. They were looking at May 20th or perhaps April 20th. Where did December 25th come from? Well, it's hard to conclusively prove things from antiquity, but here's what we know. We know for a fact that as Rome became Christianized and the early church morphed into the Holy Roman Catholic Church, that they sought to convert pagans through cultural assimilation. So pagan temples were not destroyed. They became churches. And pagan feasts were not ended. They became feasts of the church and of the saints. And so if Christian festivals look like pagan festivals, well, the pagans would be much more open to joining the church. With this in mind, it's not surprising to learn that in antiquity, December 25th had many pagan connections. We know that the Romans celebrated winter solstice on December 25th. Also in AD 274, the emperor Aurelian declared December 25th to be the birthday of the sun god Sol Invictus, which means invincible sun. We also know that the week before December 25th was Saturnalia, which was a Roman feast to worship or celebrate the god Saturn. This is a week-long pagan celebration featuring eating, drinking, gambling, and gift-giving. Now, we have no ancient decree to prove this, but it's most likely that some early pope just declared December 25th to be the birthday of Jesus to assimilate these pagan festivals to attract more converts I mean, why worship the sun God when you can worship the son of God? And this made the barrier of entry into the church much easier for pagans because they could essentially keep their cultural feasts. And so ever since the late fourth century, that the birth of Christ was marked on December 25th. The Roman Catholic Church started celebrating Christ's mass on that day. And that is where the term Christmas comes from. The mass, the Eucharist of the Christ. And Christmas was go, would go on to be celebrated throughout the Middle Ages as a feast day. But the thing is, throughout the medieval times, they, they celebrated this really, they carried forward the traditions and customs of Saturnalia, which included partying, eating, drinking, gambling. This is, in fact, why the Puritans later outlawed Christmas. In the 17th century, many Puritans made the celebration of Christmas illegal, but They weren't banning Christmas as we know it. They weren't opposing a day of festive decorations and gift-giving among family. That's not what they were reacting against. Rather, Christmas in the medieval era, it was more like Mardi Gras today, featuring heavy drinking, gambling, debauchery, and sexual morality. That was medieval Christmas. 
It wasn't until the 1800s that Christmas was revived and we would say rebranded in England as a day of feasting, celebrating, and gift-giving among family. Pagan practices were fully repackaged with Christian symbolism. And then later in the 1950s, after the war in America, capitalism got its hand on Christmas and it continued morphing into what we know today. So all this goes to say, Christmas as we know it today actually has very little to do with the Bible. Rather, this holiday is just the product of ever-changing cultural traditions. And so, like I said before, why do we do pretty much all the things we do around this time of year? Just going to come back to some tradition. Most of our traditions actually come from Europe, but American capitalism has put its own spin on it, and it's, this is what we know today. In America, in our culture, Christmas is a secular holiday with optional religious overtones that don't come from the Bible, but from tradition. And look, as Christians today, you have total liberty to partake in the traditions of your culture. So if you want to engage in all the American trappings of Christmas, go ahead. You're perfectly free to do so. You have liberty to do so. But you'd also not be wrong to abstain. If if you were to have absolutely nothing to do with the American traditions of Christmas, you would not be unchristian. You have liberty to partake or abstain. This is not a, a matter of scripture, but tradition. With all this in mind, though, though our Christmas traditions are not in the Bible, this morning I thought I might want to address the whole concept of tradition from the Bible. And Christmas time is a perfect time for us to, to question and address the place tradition has in our lives. And for many people, Christmas, it's a perfect example because it's, it's like a sacred cow that cannot be touched or questioned as a holy day. But look, as Christians, we aim to be, above all, men and women of the book. God's word is our rule for life and practice. So, so what do we make of parts of our life and practice that aren't found in the book? This is worth reflecting on and seeing what the book has to say about that. We don't want to be blindly led by tradition or or even led astray by tradition. Traditions, they're not necessarily bad, but they can have sometimes some serious pitfalls. And so we want to be instructed and equipped with eyes wide open. And all the more so recently, our time together, we've been witnessing some of the pitfalls of tradition firsthand. Normally here, we're going through the the gospel of Matthew verse by verse, and we've been seeing Jesus come into conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And one of the huge problems of the scribes and Pharisees was that they based their lives on tradition, not scripture, but tradition. They they paid lip service to scripture, but they really had effectively supplanted God's word with their own man-made rules and rituals. And so we find Jesus himself has a thing or two to say about the role tradition, man-made tradition, should play in our lives. And this is still something we need to consider, even if it can be challenging to hear. So I want to help you with that this morning. I want to give you three biblical lessons on the place tradition should have in our lives. Three biblical lessons on the place tradition should have in our lives. And we'll continue to pick on our Christmas traditions because it's just the perfect Case in point, three biblical lessons on the place tradition should have in our lives. And traditions, they're not wrong, they're not inherently wrong, but they can go wrong. And so these lessons, they really come to us as warnings. Scripture cautions us to make sure we get tradition right. So let's heed these first. 
The first uh, uh, lesson by way of warning, beware elevating tradition above scripture. Beware elevating tradition above scripture. I hope you already know this first lesson, but we have to establish it. This was the main warning Christ himself gave concerning man-made traditions. If you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, or, or you can listen along. But I told you how one of the main problems with the religious leaders was how they, they elevated their man-made traditions above Scripture. Well, here in this passage, we have some scribes and Pharisees. They come up to Jesus because they don't like how some of his disciples were ignoring their traditions. His disciples were seen eating bread with unwashed hands. So the Pharisees take this issue up with Jesus, their master. Now, all their rules on hand washing did not come from the Old Testament. This is just another example of, of an invented tradition, which they elevated to the same status of Scripture. They, they really devised their own system of rules and traditions, which, which they controlled, which they used to lord over the people. But, but Jesus is going to have none of this. He, he came to represent and uphold God's word and will, not man's. He had little regard for their traditions, even though everyone believed in these things. Everyone held to these. It was just everyone subscribed to these traditions. It's part of their culture, ingrained in their culture, but not Jesus. Mark 7, look at verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Verse 3 explains, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? I mean, here's Jesus. He claims to be this great teacher, but, but he can't be. Because, I mean, he's not keeping the traditions of the elders. I mean, how can you be righteous? You're not even keeping their law. That's their issue here, that this washing is just one more example of the endless list of rules and rituals they invented to supposedly appear righteous. They really added their own set of man-made traditions to God's word. Worse yet, they, they supplanted, they overturned what God's word actually said because of their traditions. And Jesus, though, he's, he's not going to let this stand. Verse 6, he said to them, Jesus, He said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. His people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. They can pretend to be as close to God as they want, and they might even fool themselves. But really, their hearts are light years away from the Lord. And verse 7, it's a stunning declaration. In vain do they worship me. I mean, all their worship was worthless. That Their prayers, their tithes, their sacrifices meant nothing 
to the Lord because their heart were far, were, their hearts were far from him. So Jesus condemns their whole system, which was built on scripture plus tradition. And anytime you elevate man-made tradition above the scriptures, you go astray. So look at verse 9. He adds, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban. That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. It's another example, but long story short here, what he's saying is they took the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, and they completely overturned it with the tradition. They, they invented this rule about vowing your money to the Lord. They just made that up. And since, hey, my money is the Lord's now, a.k.a. mine, and uh, I can't help you. This is a loophole that they didn't have to take care of their aging parents. You can see why Jesus condemns them, because they weren't just adding to the word. They were overturning the word, replacing it, replacing what God actually said with their own rules and traditions. This is the very definition of legalism, and it only yields false worship. And tradition by itself It's not wrong. It's not inherently evil. Everyone subscribes to some tradition. We're all, we all have some part in it. Every church subscribes to some tradition because the Bible is silent on many things. For example, how should, how should pastors dress? Should they wear priestly garments? Should they wear long robes? Should they wear suits? Should they wear dress as the people? The Bible says nothing about that. Your answer will be tied to some tradition. And look, there's liberty there. As long as your traditions don't contradict or overturn scripture, we have liberty in Christ. But the second you take any man-made tradition and you elevate it over and against what God has actually said, how he's actually told us to live, well, you've become a legalist. You've committed the same error as the scribes and Pharisees, which are whom the Lord rebuked. And so we have this first lesson, and it applies across the board throughout the whole year to all aspects of life. Just beware elevating any tradition above Scripture. So now let's apply this first lesson to our Christmas traditions. Now, it's safe to say, though, that, that most of our Christmas traditions, they, they appear basically neutral. They don't seem to contradict the Bible. That's because the Bible is just mostly silent about Christmas. But let me give you one example here where the rubber really meets the road. What would you do if Christmas fell on a Sunday? Every handful of years, this happens. It's a dilemma churches and Christians must face. Do you go to church? Do you stay home and open presents? And as believers, God's word tells us not to forsake the assembly of believers. We are told to gather for teaching, preaching, fellowship, prayer, praise, the Lord's Supper. Those aren't traditions. Those are prescriptions, commands from the Lord. But at the same time, we, we have these deeply ingrained Christmas traditions in our culture where, what do you do? You probably wake up, you have a pancake breakfast, You open presents, you're probably still in your pajamas. It's a whole thing. 
And it's a fun tradition. Who doesn't love presents? But would you forsake that tradition? Or at least reschedule it for the church? I remember one time my old church Christmas was going to fall on a Sunday. And a few other prominent churches had already canceled services for Christmas Sunday morning. And the elders and pastors, they had a real discussion about what to do because a few had, had thought of, maybe, maybe we should cancel, just purely because they thought no one's going to show up or we would have no children's ministry staff. But I remember the senior pastor putting his foot down and making a stand, really asking, how can the church, especially its leaders, forsake what God has told us to do for the sake of just a, a tradition, a cultural tradition? There's nothing biblical about exchanging presents on Christmas morning. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do so, but it does mean that tradition should never take precedence over what God has actually said. And so for us, it's a no-brainer. When Christmas falls on a Sunday, it's business as usual here. And in case you're wondering, that's going to happen next year, by the way, 2022. So you can prepare now and get your heart ready now. Just accept it. You'll be here next year on Sunday morning. Let me give you another example, though. You know, as followers of Christ, he directs us to live lives of peace, patience, contentment. That's how he calls us to live. But we all know that our Christmas culture comes with some serious expectations and even burdens. And if you give in to them, they they might tempt you and even rob you of your peace, patience, and contentment. And instead, you might find stress, anxiety, greed, selfishness. If you find that the way you celebrate Christmas is not a blessing to your soul, but a burden or a source of sinful anxiety, there's a good chance you have elevated this tradition higher than it it needs to be. I'm not saying you have to cancel Christmas, but we all need to carefully examine all the subtle ways that we've elevated tradition above how we are truly directed to follow and worship Christ. Something we all need to take in consideration all the time. All right, let me give you a second lesson here, which comes as another warning. Beware elevating one day above the others. Beware elevating one day above the others. I'm not going to get into a whole theology of, of holidays or holy days here, but let me give you two passages to consider. The first is Colossians chapter 2. Again, if you like, you can turn there. Colossians chapter 2. You know, for Israel, under the old covenant, that the worship of God was centralized. God prescribed for them a place of worship, the temple. And he prescribed for them a time of worship, the Sabbath. And on top of that, he gave them many feasts or holy days. These were designed to remind the people of something God had done and draw out their worship in response. And so Israel's worship in the Old Testament was very tradition-centered. Now, these were God-given traditions, though. This is how they were to worship him. But we no longer live in that era. The era of shadows has been replaced by the era of substance. Christ has come, and with him, a, a new covenant. And now we're able to draw near to the Lord without restriction. If you know Christ by faith, Scripture says we're united to him, that his spirit dwells within us, This has radically changed the nature of true worship. No longer are we bound to the prescribed forms of worship from the Old Testament. God has always wanted true worship from the heart, but now we're able to give it to him. And so 
This is why our worship is no longer bound to a place. Jesus made this clear when talking to the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, she asked Jesus, you know, where, where's the true place of worship? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? And what did Christ say back to her? I'll just read for you, John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What he's saying is the true location of worship is no longer a temple. It is the spirit. And that's a reference to our spirit, i.e. the heart. This means that the right place of worship is everywhere. God wants you to worship him from your heart. You take that where you go, you're to worship him everywhere you go. And accordingly, our worship is no longer bound to a specific day or feast or holy day. This is why in the early church in the New Testament, the Sabbath observance was dropped. It's not so much that Jesus no longer regarded the Sabbath as a holy day. It's just that he showed every day is a holy day. Every day should be consecrated to the Lord. Every day you should worship and remember the Lord. And so the special observance of days, likewise, did not translate into the new covenant community, which is the church. This will help you make sense of Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Paul says this, Colossians 2, 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's talking about old covenant forms of worship here. Look, the early church was going through a massive transition from living under the old covenant to the new covenant. And there is some confusion on how to live. You have all these Jews who accept Christ, enter the church, but also these pagan Gentiles accept Christ, enter the church. And they're wondering, like, how are we supposed to do this? And the apostles tell. Here you had some Christians who were passing judgment on other Christians because they they did not keep the old forms of worship. Food and drink, they weren't keeping the dietary restrictions of the law. And then they weren't observing the holy days. These were the annual festivals. This was the monthly new moon sacrifice, and this was the weekly Sabbath. Annually, monthly, weekly, These were their holy days. And and these other Christians were saying, if you want to be part of God's people, you have to keep these days. But here Paul says, actually, no, that that's no longer the case. And he says, don't let others judge you over these things. These aren't the measure of salvation. And these are no longer the measure of true spirituality. Now that Christ has come and his new covenant, the old forms have passed away. That's not the time of shadows anymore, but the time of substance. And so now, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all things to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And now, the point is, every single day is to be a day of worship. In Christ, we're free from the old forms of worship, which were tied to holy days. And keep in mind, this, this even includes Sundays for us. Sunday is a special time for our corporate worship, uh, of course, but... We don't need any holy day to worship God. We are rather to be a people who remember him and thank him 
and live in light of him every day. And now when you, when you understand all this, that you know, we, we no longer need holidays, you might draw the conclusion that maybe we should abolish all holidays. And this pendulum, pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction for some. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, forbid the observance of any holiday from Christmas to your birthday, thinking it's a sin. Is that what we should do? But here's where another principle of scripture comes in related to Christian liberty. And how do we relate to things that are not commanded in scripture, but also not forbidden? How do we relate to things not commanded, but also not forbidden? And for this, you can turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. It's true that it's no longer commanded for us to observe holy days or holidays. But you know, it's also not forbidden So what do we do? Paul, Romans 14, he's dealing with all these new believers coming to the church from different backgrounds, different cultures. This was leading them to form different conclusions on how to live. But the thing is, scripture was just silent on many of their differences. And Paul argues that where God's word gives us no convictions, we're free. We have liberty. And we still need to refrain from judging one another or stumbling one another or violating our own conscience, but we have a measure of freedom and liberty in Christ. So he first uses the example of eating meat versus being a vegetarian in Romans 14. But then he uses the example of holidays. Look at verse 5 in Romans 14. He says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. What's going on here is you had some early Jewish Christians still immature in their faith, and they they just still felt obliged to keep the Sabbath in all of their feast days, not knowing better. Meanwhile, you had these pagan converts coming into the church, the opposite direction. They're thinking, we need to get rid of all of our pagan feasts and festivals entirely. And, you know, Paul says, look, there's liberty in both directions, right? He just says, verse five, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That is not counsel you give someone over a sin issue, Right? You don't say like, hey, you know, it's okay to steal from your boss as long as you're fully convinced in your own mind. It's, it's okay. <laughs> now, sin is black and white. But for non-sin issues, wisdom issues, we call them liberty issues. Here, that includes the observance of days. There's freedom. What matters is verse 6, trying to be pleasing to the Lord. The Lord looks at the heart. He's not He's given us his spirit to guide us. We don't need a long, infinite list of do's and don'ts anymore. But are you trying to be pleasing to the Lord from your heart? That's what he looks at. That's what he will judge. Are you seeking to honor him in all that you do or not? This is what matters more for us than Christ. And so with these balancing principles in mind, we can now again draw some conclusions and apply them to our traditions around Christmas. I think for most people, Christmas, it's a special day. It's a holiday. It's not prescribed in scripture, but you have liberty to observe it. So long as you're convinced in your mind, it's the right thing to do. 
It passes the test of your conscience. You have total freedom to partake in all of our cultural traditions around Christmas. If you do so, seek to honor the Lord in them. Right? Whatever you do, do for the Lord. As Christians, we should be Christ-centered in all we do. Yeah, have some Christ-centered Christmas traditions and celebrations. Honor the Lord in whatever you do. But even if you do observe Christmas, you need to beware elevating this one day above all the rest. Of thinking too much of this special day. And as we learned, we're, we're no longer bound to holy days of worship. You know what this means is, if the only time you think of and remember Christ's coming to the earth and its significance is the month of December, you have a problem. Or if the only time you attempt to seek the Lord is Christmas and Easter, you have a problem. We all need to examine ourselves. I mean, does that look like a true worshiper? God is still seeking true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and truth. He wants your heart given over to him. And that heart worship, it's not reserved for holidays or, or special occasions. But it, when it's true, it, it comes every day, everywhere, every place. It's just a life of worship consecrated to the Lord. That's what he wants. It's only right to examine yourself and ask, is Christ truly my heart's treasure? And that's really part of the essence of faith. Look, ask, ask any child what's their favorite holiday. They're all going to tell you the same thing. Christmas. And you know why. It's treasure. They just want presents, right? They want more stuff. Who doesn't love more stuff? It's not often that different for us adults. But you have to ask who or what has captured your heart. And for those in Christ, we just need to strive to make him our all in all, all the time. Not just one day a year. Not just on special occasions or holidays. So look, celebrate Christmas if you wish. By all means, just beware neglecting the other 364 days of the year for, for remembering and worshiping, enjoying, exalting Christ, the King of Kings. All right, one last lesson here. Third, beware elevating the birth of Jesus over his death. Beware elevating the birth of Jesus over his death. Death. And this third lesson is directly tied to Christmas. And so far we've established Christmas is not actually a biblical holiday. It's not a holy day according to the word. We, we don't even know the day of his birth. But you have total liberty to mark the occasion. It's not even wrong to partake in the cultural traditions surrounding Christmas. So long as they don't supplant what we are told to do in God's word. It's, it's certainly not wrong to remember and celebrate the coming of the Christ into the world. We do so. But even then, you should know it's not the emphasis of the New Testament. And this gives us another caution. The birth of Jesus into the world was certainly necessary in God's plan of salvation to save us, but it was not sufficient. Meaning this, if all Jesus did was come into the world born of a virgin and that's it, and then just left, we would still be dead in our sins. That there was no atonement made in the birth. It was necessary. He had to become like one of us to be our substitute sacrifice. It was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. More had to be done. Instead, his, his death and resurrection affected his salvation work. His death was both necessary and sufficient to save us. 
And that's why his death and resurrection are at the core of the gospel message. His death and resurrection get the lion's share of attention in the New Testament. And they should get the lion's share of attention in our lives. So a final passage, if you want to go there, Luke 22. Luke 22, it's the night before Christ's death. And he knows he's going to depart. But he wants his disciples to remember something about him. So they're observing the the Passover meal, that old covenant prescribed day of worship. But Jesus is going to redefine it. He takes the bread and the cup, ordinary meals, ordinary parts of this meal. And he's going to make a new time of remembrance out of them. God, God knows the power and the value of memorials. But this is going to be different. He's not going to give them just a new annual feast to replace Passover with. But, but a, a new time of remembrance. How often? As often as you eat and drink. He takes the bread and the, the wine. Back then, the, the most ordinary food and drink you had. But he infuses new meaning into these symbols. Now these represent his body and his blood. Broken and spilled out for your salvation. And Jesus gives us, the church here, a simple ceremony, a type of prescribed tradition that he wants us to corporately rehearse because it viscerally evokes what? His birth? No, his death. The, the one main form of remembrance the Lord gave to us, telling us, do this in remembrance of me, is all about his death, not his birth. What did he say in giving this meal? Do this in remembrance of me. We're never commanded to do anything in remembrance of his birth. It's not wrong to do so, but we're never even suggested to remember his birth like we do. But we are told this, Luke twenty-two nineteen. It says, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus added again, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, the emphasis of the New Testament falls squarely on the death of Jesus to save us. It is his life-giving death that we must remember continually. I mean, don't you find it interesting that after the four gospels, The birth of Jesus is never even mentioned once again. In fact, the gospels of Mark and Luke don't even think to include the birth narrative of Jesus. Only Matthew. Did I say Mark and Luke? I said Mark and John don't include. Only Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth of Christ. Again, it's not to suggest that his birth is an irrelevant truth or doctrine. Again, it's still relevant. It's still essential The birth of Jesus is essential in establishing his full humanity. He had to be like one of us. And the virgin birth of Jesus is essential in establishing his full deity. He had to be born free from the stain of sin. And Christ's birth is key to understanding and appreciating the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God into the world. But God came into the world for a purpose. And that purpose was to die. The father sent the son to live, grow up, and then die on a cross for us. He went to the cross to make complete atonement for our sins, to be that perfect substitute sacrifice, the means by which we can actually be forgiven 
4, we're the sinners. We are not sinless. And this is why all four Gospels, they could not imagine excluding the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They devote the largest percentage of their works to his death and resurrection. And the cross was the reason he was born. And this explains why every New Testament letter after the Gospels, while they don't mention the birth of Jesus, they all mention the death of Jesus. A quick sampling. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ and Christ crucified. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Ephesians 1.7, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And at our old house, we did put up Christmas lights, like to do it. I also made a, a big wooden cross, strung, strung some, tied some red lights around it. Displayed it high up in a window, a prominent window. It could be seen from the freeway. It's kind of cool. But, you know, it bothered one of our neighbors. And the thing is, he claimed to be Christian. He was an Eastern Orthodox Christian. But he asked him, like, why, why do I have to put up the cross? It's so negative. Right? Christmas, it's a positive, happy time. Why, why do you got to bring in the bloody cross to Christmas is what he asked me. But really, that's, isn't that how the world thinks? This is why the secular world they can still accept the basic religious overtones surrounding Christmas. A sinless Savior dying on the cross to bear the wrath of God and pay for our sins. That message is just inherently offensive because it, it de facto condemns us all as sinners, as under God's wrath. But a baby in a manger, that's just cute, right? That's not offensive. That baby makes no demands of your life. That the baby's not confronting you about your sins or calling you to repent and believe. It's just a, a display in a nativity. But listen, that, that baby came to free you from your sin and its penalty. And that there's good news to be had for lost sinners such as us. But that, that good news is tied to his death. The good news is that baby did not stay in a manger. But he grew up and went to the cross that he might pay the full penalty for our sins. And the good news is that Savior did not stay on the cross, but he went to the grave, having fully tasted death for us. And the good news is that Savior did not stay in the grave, but rose again, having proven his work was complete. And now all who follow him, he offers to them eternal life. In Christ, and in Christ alone, there is true life. And so even for today, for, for our Christmas sermon, we need to be reminded of his death, of, of the good news. If you've not heard it or believed it or yielded your life to it, today's that day. Call upon the Savior. He's no longer in the manger or the cross or the grave. He's at the right hand of the Father. And those who repent and, and call upon him with their heart, seeking his gift of forgiveness, he, he promises to, to forgive, to save, to make new. And then you'll know why we aim to worship and remember this Christ every single day, not just on Christmas. I mean, he saved us from the eternal weight of our sin and granted us eternal reconciliation with the Father. How could we limit our praise and thanksgiving to him to, to just one day or even one season? 
mean, the problem with Christmas is that it's just not enough. The Christmas season is not even enough. We need every day for all eternity to exhaust the praise we should give him who saved us. Ironically, though, in America, Christmas has been so highly exalted that it has transcended a single day and become a season, right? It's a season of celebration. Christmas season stretches way back into November now, but we all know it's it's for the wrong reasons. Now people will spend two months in light of Christmas, not thinking about Christ, thinking about shopping. That's the Christmas season. For us though, in light of Christmas, in light of the cross, in light of Easter, we're to spend every day for the rest of our lives remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ, praising him for it, being continually transformed by it, all to his glory. I hope this is true for you as well. As for Christmas itself, enjoy it to whatever degree you want to. We're just in a very unique situation. Like, think about it. What is Christmas in America? It was a pagan holiday taken over by Christians, infused with biblical meaning. Now, pagans are taking it back and making it a secular holiday once again. What do you really expect? And are are they doing so wrong in their mind? What is this to us? But for us, we're we're just stuck somewhere in the middle. We've inherited a Christmas holiday that it's some mix of Christian tradition and pagan tradition. Look, now you just have to decide how to celebrate it with your family or not. But it'll be up to you to navigate with your conscience this liberty of our Christmas culture. Hopefully, we've provided you with some lessons and cautions on how to do that biblically this morning. But I will tell you what, as a final thought, I do believe our cultural Christmas season provides us with many unique opportunities to magnify Christ and share him with the world around us. And I think we should take advantage of these. Just consider this, at least for now in America, there are still many vestiges of religious tradition around Christmas time. It, their holiday has not been completely secularized yet. So like even on the radio, you will hear songs playing with lyrics that say, you know, glory to the newborn king. The, the Charlie Brown Christmas special will air where Linus gives a, a pretty solid biblical explanation of the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> Front yards will host Jesus is the reason for the season signs. Families will gather on Christmas Eve and that someone will pray before the meal when otherwise they would never mention God. People come to church. You know, what I say here in this mixed bag of traditions are opportunities. Whatever you make of the holiday in our nation, you should recognize that that the Christmas season, for many people, it opens this tiny little back door to the things of the Lord in their hearts. It can get them thinking about life and truth, sin, and salvation. And that's, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. I think you should take advantage of those little open doors. So look, for your household, do as you please. Take some traditions, make new ones, find ways to infuse biblical truth in all you do. We've learned just do whatever you do to the honor of the Lord. Remember the Lord and all that you do. But I would say use these open doors that come this time of year to, to be like the angels, to announce to all the good news of a savior, savior who was born, who lived, who died, and who rose again to bring us back to our God. So let's announce that good news this time of year. Join me in a word of prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, we do pray hallowed be your name. We exalt your name. This day, 
and every day. It is a special time for us culturally to remember the birth of Christ, and that, that's not a bad thing. We will take advantage of that. Use these opportunities that come this time of year to fix our eyes on Christ, the Savior who was born, who came in lowly circumstances, humbled himself uh, to become a man and live among us, a bond slave. This is good to remember. We need to be reminded of these truths each, each and every day. And we'll take advantage of a season that, that makes it front and center to your glory. But I pray we also learn not, not to leave it January 1st, to leave it behind. When we carry with us the, the good news of a Savior, the greatest gift, who was born and who lived and who died and who rose again for us. He came not for our sins, but for our, for his sins rather, but for ours. And to pay the penalty we deserve that we could never pay on our own. There's nothing we could do for we are not righteous. We are lost in our sin. This is precisely why he hung on that cross, rising from the dead, proving his payment was complete. In Christ, there's victory, there's new life, there's peace and joy, and not to mention life eternal. For any here who, who have not known him or given up their life to him, I pray you convict their hearts even this morning and open their eyes to see the good news, that it goes way beyond Christmas, that they would be pricked and convinced and they would call out to him and find the real reason we're here, why we are celebrating and not just in Christmas. We're here every week aiming to live for him every day because he is just that worthy. And for all of us who do believe and confess him and cling to him, I pray you just increase our appetite for Christ. All of us can fall prey to making some other treasure our heart's desire. And I pray you just help Christ be exalted in our hearts that we do find in him our all in all each and every day. And may we see and savor this savior more and more. Be with us. We exalt you and aim to honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.